I'm Dennis Metzler, and welcome to The Charge. Today, we're taking a look at theology and art with Dr. William Dearness, Senior Professor of Theology and Culture from Fuller Theological Seminary. Dr. Dearness, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So, to start with, um, we're going to look at creation. I'd like to hear what you have to say about the relationship between theology and art from a perspective of creation, and then if you could tie that into the gospel, and particularly as the gospel points towards new creation. Right. Well, creation is the fundamental work of God in terms of what, as far as we're concerned, it's the beginning of the human drama, but it's also the beginning of a kind of cosmos, the beginning of heaven and earth, all things that God created. And I've been recently struck by the, the fact that if you look at creation in terms of a process of creativity, of God's creation, you begin to understand something about not only uh, the nature of creativity as a gradual awakening of an object that you're caring about and that you're loving, but also the nature of the, the creator uh, the, the creator God and and how God is invested in this process of creation just like the just like a, a creator a human creator is invested in in their creation it it's a, illuminates so many different things about what it means to be human uh, about our calling as humans, which always is interacting in some way with creation because we breathe the air, we touch the, the soil, and we make plants, we plant things, we develop all kinds of uh, artifacts from creation. But create, we're always in, engaged and, and part of creation, and we, we should never forget that. We're not separate from it somehow, but we're, we're part of it. We we grow out of it, and we're we're called to it, and for it, and we're part of its future, which of course is what God is interested in as well is in the future of creation. So I don't know if you want to follow up there. I mean, I I my model of creation is my model of uh, of theology actually is creation, new creation. So that's. That's the fundamental framework of my theology, and I think it's the fundamental way in which helps us understand theology and art as well. So, more specifically then, what does the Bible say about art beyond God's creation? We have the tabernacle, we have mm-hmm. the temple, and where would you go with that? Well, it's, it's hard to say specifically now, what does Bible the Bible say about art, and then a lot of people conclude, well, the Bible doesn't say very much about art, so the Bible doesn't, doesn't have anything to do with art. It's like C.S. Lewis once said, the New Testament doesn't have much to say about culture. Well, I mean, first of all, that's an anachronistic question, because culture is a very modern notion. It's a very modern idea that, that there would have been no equivalent even word in, in, in the New Testament time. And so the same is true of art. Art is, is a, a modern idea. In fact, it's really since the Reformation and Renaissance that the word art 
separate process from craft, what we call craft. Earlier, art and craft were sort of all mixed in together. So the Bible doesn't have anything to say about that because it didn't, the idea didn't exist. But whether the Bible is interested in beauty or in craftsmanship or in the development of the world as a, a site for glory, the glory of God, and in Calvin's famous expression, creation is a theater for the glory of God. In other words, creation is was made as a kind of panorama to display all the goodness of God, which you see on uh, in every tree and every every flower and, and every fruiting uh, plant. So uh, the, the the Bible is full of that, and that is, of course, our the way in which we think about art is is starts with these things, uh, and 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 mostly celebrates them in in the way we we draw or paint or write and or, or in our poetry and so forth. So the medieval scholastics gave us the notion of the, the transcendentals. And so how do you see beauty working with goodness and truth? Um, it's often the case, in, from my Christian experience, that most people just focus on goodness and truth. And beauty is, though they actually, in their, their day-to-day lives, they spend a lot of time on their hair or their makeup or... Sure. Their house sure. looked nice, but sure. in terms of what they talk about, it yeah. doesn't seem to relate to their theology. Yeah. So the way I put those things together is that um, uh, truth is the way God does things. Uh, truth, since the Enlightenment, we've made truth into an abstract set of uh, ideas but really, truth is more fundamental to just the way things are. The way and the way things are, for me as a Christian, is the way God things put things together. The way God made things, uh, and the and goodness is the moral dimension of that. Of how these things ought to be put together and ought to be understood, and ought to be celebrated, and enjoyed, and and cultivated, and cared for. The fundamental calling, the human calling, is is to enjoy, but cultivate, and take care of the created order. And that's fundamental to me, to the, 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 the calling to goodness, to make goodness. But the way I put it is that, and I I get this from Calvin Seerfeld in a wonderful article he wrote, uh, The Truth is the Way God Does Things. And I say, beauty is what that looks like. So ultimately, beauty and goodness are connected to what God does and what we're called to imitate and to, to make and do in our own lives. So beauty is, it has to do with our senses and the fact that we can appreciate that what God has done is good. Yeah, absolutely. So culture, by comparison, or by extension, culture, what we humans make of creation, we we always are using God's good creation or abusing one or the other. You know, we're 
we're, we're embedded in it, we're part of it, and we're called to be responsible for it. But it, it's what make poss- makes possible human civilization, history, and so forth. All right. And we have, uh, I'd like to hear what you think about the big three traditions, Protestant, Catholic, and Eastern Orthodox, and compare those, but then especially um, focus more on Protestant uh, relationship to visual art. And then I know you've, I've heard you talk a lot about Luther and Calvin, so go, to go deeper in the Reformers. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, actually, the, the question you asked at the beginning of the program, the, the confession you made that you hadn't really thought very much about theology and art, is a sort of typical confession that that we Protestants all make because uh, this is not a part of our tradition. I mean, it's not. But if you were a Catholic, you would never say that because when you go to church every Sunday, you're you're in, embedded in in traditions of art and sculpture and liturgy and so forth. So <clears throat> that tradition, since since the beginning. Uh, the Catholic tradition was uh, included works of art as a part of its worship, and in, in the Orthodox tradition, <clears throat> their their space, since it was to be a model of heaven in a certain sense, that it it uh, its space is a heavenly space, so it's a beautiful space. It's a space where God dwells. And it especially focuses its art on what they call icons, the images of saints and and events, uh, sacred events from the Bible that are particularly revelatory of God's presence. So for them, too, beauty is inevitably and deeply associated with their worship. Now, Protestants, it, it never was a part of our worship because I, I think, as you implied earlier, truth is much more important than than beauty, and we're interested in the truth of doctrine and so forth, which, of course, is important. But I've come in my study of John Calvin to think about those things differently. And you have to remember how our tradition started at the Reformation. Uh, with Calvin and and even with Luther as well. And that is that they started in a period in which images were everywhere, hundreds of them. And some of them were being misused because they were used for superstitious reasons and they were were felt to be uh, sacred and magic, even magical. So the product to, to really do away with that and to provide a kind of clearer understanding of what we call the gospel. So that was their <clears throat> initial um, impulse, and it's called, this is called iconoclast, you know, that, that word uh, is icon breakers. They were, they were called the icon breakers, but in truth, actually, neither Calvin or Luther were supportive of breaking icons at all, so that's that's sometimes a, 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 an exaggeration of what actually went on. But I think when you study their, their work, clearly 
what they were trying to do is to replace one way of thinking about the world with another way. The medieval way was a kind of considered a kind of journey to God and anything that could help you reach that pinnacle of, of faith in God um, was considered to be uh, allow, allowed and, and even promoted. So, for example, in, <clears throat> in Dante's famous uh, Divine Comedy, where Dante climbs the, the mountain of purgatory to get to God, he makes use of images all along the way to encourage him in his journey, so to speak. And then finally, when he gets to, to, to the ethereal realm in the Paradiso in the end, it's really a kind of vision of God. And it's, it's partly aesthetic, or in fact, you could say largely aesthetic as well as being spiritual. So the vision of God in heaven was something that they were looking forward to. And any kind of image or liturgy or a pilgrimage that could help them in that journey was promoted. Well, Luther tried to turn that world upside down, and he said, wait a minute now, it's not as though we have to climb up to God, it's God's come down to us. He used the image of the manger. You know, the main reason the manger is important is that God came down there to be a part of our world and a part of our life. So <clears throat> that world is kind of turned upside down, that's, a, that's a, a kind of long story there, but I've put it into very simple simple uh, terms that I hope make that clear. Calvin said, now wait a minute, though. Rather than turning our attention toward this journey to God, which focused, of course, on the, in the church, I mean, you go into a medieval cathedral, what does it do? It focuses your attention on the altar, the space above, and it lifts you up to God. Yeah, something kind of beautiful about that, something okay about that. But Calvin said, now wait a minute, though. The gospel, the purpose of the gospel is not to take us to God, but the purpose of the, uh, of the gospel is to put us into the world, to push mm -hmm. us out into the world. So rather than being a kind of centripetal force, which it was in the medieval period, Calvin thought, no, the gospel is a kind of <clears throat> gift that sends us out into the world, just as the Lord sent the disciples into all the nations, to the world, to make disciples. So what, what the way Calvin put it is that we are... We emissaries of this new creation we're sent into the world to be part and builders of this new creation so that led me to think about the space of the church differently if the space of the church is not meant to be the sort of center of our worship but rather an impetus to lead us out into the world where our real discipleship takes place and our real Christian life for most for the most part takes place, maybe it doesn't need to be filled with all these pictures. Now, he was not against it, 
He said, I'm, you know, but he, if it can be used for teaching, he said it might be okay. But actually, he never did use it for teaching. So, and most of, and most of the artists were out of work in um, Geneva by the time Kelvin came. So, um, it, it is a kind of sad story for what we call art, again. But he, I, I argue in my most recent book, uh, the, the beginning of Protestant aesthetics, that he, he transformed aesthetics in a way that he made it a part of the whole world rather than focusing on religious or liturgical or specifically uh, sacred art, which was the focus of art in the medieval period. That began to change at the end of the medieval period, and so Calvin just didn't do it on his own, but he was certainly a a significant uh, impulse in that change. All right, so you've already touched on this, but can you more specifically talk about sacramentality? Um, Some say there's only two sacraments, and some people see dozens or an infinite number of sacraments. What's your view on that? Well, that's a good question, you see, because the the view of the medieval period, and especially still in the Catholic view, is that, that, that these are actually sacramental in, the, in that they are sacred. They are in, in, endowed with sort of sacred uh, reality to them. Uh, Luther, interestingly, reduced it to baptism and Lord's Supper. But interestingly, he wanted a third, which was penance, which is really, I find, really interesting. Now, he was overruled when it was finally, the Council of Augsburg finally took place, but he wanted penance and penitence so that it's just not justification by faith, but also creating yourself, recreating yourself in a, in a new way, a new Christian mm-hmm. way. And he was concerned about that, which is really not what people think of when they think of, of Luther. But Calvin preserved the two, baptism and Lord's Supper, and he believed and taught that they were means of grace, so that they were sacramental in that sense, in the, in, in the same sense that preaching the gospel is, is, is sacramental, that whenever the word is preached, Calvin taught, the spirit accompanies that preaching of the word. So in the same sense, the the, the, the Baptism and Lord's Supper, in a certain sense, are visual, enacted sermons. In our baptism, we're dying with Christ and being raised. We go down into the water, we come up out of the water, washed and cleaned from our sins and so forth. So that, 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 that experience is a means of grace when we accept it and, and embrace it for ourselves. Um, the same is true of Lord's Supper. Interestingly, he moved the table in the church in <clears throat> in Geneva, his church, which of course had been a Catholic church for 100 years. He moved the table from the front where it was an altar, and the priest faced the altar. Uh, he moved it from there back into the middle of the congregation, where it became the Lord's table. So congregants and and priests could use it to put the elements on it and then distribute it to the people. 
So it became, in, instead of what we what the Catholics call Eucharist or communion, it is Lord's Supper. That is Lord's Supper. The Lord is inviting us to become participants in his body and blood. And that's what we do. And so that is that is a means of grace. It's not just a symbol. <clears throat> it's a means of grace. And the reason for that is that the Holy Spirit is present in that event and making it a, a living a, a living thing. And your in your view, do you see the sacraments going beyond that? Do you want to add more or <clears throat> That's pretty much, I would say, my my view, because I resist the idea that all of reality is sacramental in, in a certain sense, which is what um, what Roman Catholic traditional teaching has been, that all of reality is potentially sacred, but it is all endowed by the presence of God, and God is there in, in every in every uh, place. Uh, I want to say the glory of God can be there, but God, it's not literally God. And in, in, in uh, the Reformed tradition, one of the things you remember, you need to remember, is that Calvin and the Reformers, and Luther would agree here, that the, the distinction between God and creation is the one unbridgeable gulf. Um, God is separate from creation, Creation reflects God. It embodies the glory of God, but it's not God. Okay. Um, <clears throat> so Jesus came both fasting and feasting. And there's been a long tradition of asceticism. Yeah. And I, I was wondering your thoughts on the relationship between asceticism and aesthetic <clears throat> appreciation. Uh, there seems to be with ascetics... A, a turning away even from, from aesthetics and uh, orientation towards depriving themselves of all things sensual. Yeah. So what do you think? Well, I, I think that one of the things that was lost at the Reformation is the richness of the whole liturgical tradition of the Middle Ages. And some of that was uh, misused and some of it was was disordered in, in, in some ways. But the one point at which in, in which you're asking about really is the one point that that is missing is the whole idea that Luther was trying to preserve when he wanted to preserve the idea of penance and penitence. That's why I think for me, and I, I'm a teacher of Dante, by the way, and so that's why one of the things I keep referring to is Dante's Divine Comedy. The middle <clears throat> canticle, which is purgatory, purgatorio, where Dante and Virgil climb up the mountains of purgatory, he goes through these processes of purgation, of really coming to terms with himself and seeing who he is for who he is and, and as, a, as a really deeply flawed, sinful human being that mis misreads creation and that whole process takes the whole of the middle uh, middle of the of divine comedy it's a purgatorio until he finally gets to the top and then he goes through the river of forgetfulness and it's it's really a symbol of baptism 
where he goes through this river, and then that's all washed away. It's kind of Pilgrim's Progress. Christian stand in front of the cross, and all of a sudden, <clears throat> his burdens all fall away. <clears throat> you see, in, in the Christian tradition, the Protestant tradition, that, that's a sort of magical moment where you receive Christ and all your burdens just fall away. But it doesn't work like that. Well, you all know that it doesn't work that way. That, that the Christian life is a, is a journey. And, and it also involves discipline. And the discipline involves coming to terms with who we are and developing practices that are more Christ-like and putting away other practices that, that are, are less Christ-like. So that's... I'm glad you asked that question because I think that's a part of the, the medieval tradition that we need to, to kind of recover. Now, to your question, does that mean that creation is not not good? No, not for a minute. It doesn't because it doesn't deny the value of creation. What it does is recognize our need for discipline. What what uh, what, what uh, the medieval monks recognized as spiritual disciplines, which we've recovered you know in our in, in 20th century ecumenical we've recovered what we call spiritual disciplines where we do these uh readings of scripture and and uh processes of prayer over multiple days and and fasting you mentioned and so forth all these are all can be spiritual disciplines by which we discipline ourselves to become more more like Christ. This doesn't deny for a minute the ability to enjoy creation. In fact, it probably makes that enjoyment more, it clarifies it. It brings it to a point and it makes it, uh, it possible in a certain way because we get out of the way, our egos get out of the way and our our bad habits are, are are overcome and so forth. So that, I think that's part of the uh, of the medieval spiritual tradition, which goes back to the early church. These traditions that we need to recover. I've been part of the evangelical tradition, or in and out of it, since uh, the early eighties. I've been in various churches, Quaker and Anabaptist as well, but. One thing I noticed, um, back in the old days, we used to have Christian bookstores in the 80s and the 90s. And, you know, half of those bookstores were not books. It was some sort of art. And, of course, it was some of the worst art that was ever created. And very tacky and Thomas Kincaid paintings. and, And I also remember visiting a church once where... In the kind of the lobby area outside of the sanctuary, they had several paintings, and uh, two of them were pictures of Israeli fighter jets. And I thought, you know, that's very interesting. That's very peculiar. But I just—it <laughs> seems to me that evangelicals have come a long ways in the last um, forty years, and. What, what could you say about the evolution of evangelicalism as it's related to visual art? Yes, it's true. It's, it's, a, it's a, basically a revolution in, in thinking about these things. And it's hard to put your finger on anything in particular that made that happen. 
But one of the one of the sources, clearly, and certainly this has to do with the the increase in use of kinds of music and worship bands and things like that, is that the early '90s and and people might some of my colleagues who have studied these things have pointed out that, that in the early '90s in Southern California, there was what a movement called the Jesus People, and. Among that was Calvary Chapel and um, Chuck Chuck Smith, which is a famous uh, leader and founder of that movement, which which sort of then later became uh, uh, was became several different things, but it was a kind of charismatic movement in a certain sense, you might say, within the Protestant and evangelical churches. Well, I don't know, whatever you think about that, one of the, the, the results of that was a revolution in singing scripture and, and songs and music in particular. And, and that has spawned all kinds of professional country music and, and gospel. What's gospel? These, all, these, all of these things that were given a strong push by these, these musicians. And what people don't realize as well, but there was also a visual art component to that, too. There was an exhibit at Laguna Art Museum here a few years ago that that featured some of these. And, and a lot of it was album covers that they did for the Grateful Dead and things like that. But these all, a lot of these were done by Christian artists. So there was a kind of movement there that sort of opened itself up to culture in general. And Chuck Smith was was concerned about letting the surfers come in and they put their surfboard there at the entrance and then came in and, and worshiped God and started. You know, then what he, what was his genius was to say, okay, you're a poet. Well, why don't you write some songs for us to sing? And they did. And that's what happened. And that music revolution, as you know, has gone around the world. You hardly can go anywhere in the world. I've been all over and they have music bands, you know, that's where that came from. But it also had a strong impulse in the thinking about how things look and even movement and dance in worship and things. So I think the thing that that spawned that's probably worth pointing out is thinking about worship in new ways, which, you know, before that, Protestants uh, hadn't thought in innovative ways about worship for a long time. Although World War II, Youth for Christ tried to begin some of that. They started these kinds of singing and uh, uh, rallies that they called. And, and so, so there's been it over the last half century, a kind of awakening to new forms of worship. And then beginning, especially in the 90s and 2000s, especially under the impulse of places like the Calvin Institute of Christian Worship, there's been a whole host of discussions around incorporating icons and whether Protestants could or should do that and how we think about worship in ways that pays attention to aesthetics and to art and music the way uh, art and worship itself is an art form, which it is. And uh, 
So there's a friend of mine in, in New Zealand has written a book called Curating Worship. So that worship leaders become curators and thinking about themselves as putting together an experience that's beautiful and sounds good and that moves people as dramatic and so forth. And we've realized that, okay, there's nothing wrong with this as long as the gospel is there and central and is, is what's behind this. Of course, a lot of this could distract you from the gospel, but it doesn't need to. It can also attract you. And a lot of my discussion, people say, well, doesn't art distract you? And I say, no, why can't it attract you? So um, that that's a conversation that I think we're, we're pretty uh, have won. And people realize that uh, art can be useful and, in fact, should be useful because actual worship experience is visual, it's dramatic, it's musical, and all of that should be done to the glory of God. With Calvin and then even more in people like uh, Abraham Kuyper, you have this orientation towards God's sovereignty, God's action in all the world, in every phase of um, human endeavor. So I'm thinking of the commercial, business, advertising, all products and services. Those people are very concerned with the way things look. What are your uh, theological reflections on the place of visual art in the commercial world? Well, the the commercial world, of course, is inescapable for us. And uh, as I I studied art history in early in the 70s in in Amsterdam, Free University of Amsterdam, my professor pointed out that um, some of the best art and most effective imagery comes from advertising. And a moment's thought makes that clear because that's where there that's where the patronage is. You always have to ask in art who who pays for it. Well, of course, in advertising, there's plenty of money around. And so one of the things that that's used for is a very effective kind of graphic forms and so forth. Now, of course, I have colleagues that say that's the whole problem. It's re- it's promoting an alternative liturgy that's leading people to, to the devil and to hell and all. But I don't see that that way. I mean, I think that it can be used well or poorly, and we have to evaluate what what is it doing? How does it lead people? And, and there's no intrinsic reason why some of the imagery that's used there can't be in some form or other, brought into the worship uh, experience. And I have some long, detailed instructions of how that should be done, if anybody is interested. Uh, my book, uh, Primer on Christian Worship, has a whole chapter on how do, you do, how do you bring in visual elements into the worship, because it has to be done very carefully and very sensitively and has to be done from, as you might say, from the street up, not down, top down. It can't be imposed. It has to be done. It has to come up from the, the people and their awareness of what their needs are and gifts, what the, what the gifts of, of the people have and so forth. I've been thinking about aesthetics as punishment 
And particularly in the case of prisons, say prisons that don't even have windows that the inmates can look out and they're just bare walls and deprivation at all levels. Um, do you have any thoughts on oh, that? Oh, absolutely. As- I'm, I'm so glad you even made that connection because most people don't make that connection. They say, well, they're being punished that they shouldn't enjoy anything. But if you put people in ugly surroundings for long enough, then you'll get ugly people. You'll get people that despise each other and have cynical attitudes toward toward society and toward families. I mean, whereas I'm not saying that you, you, you reward people when they're punished, but at least make them in a situation that's humane and has opportunity for them to create beauty and to explore their gifts. I mean, there's all kinds of evidence that people who are allowed to read or develop gifts or study or create things are much likely to make better citizens when they get out. But why this hasn't dawned on society that that, that, that the recidivism is clearly predictable when we want a situation where they're made to feel uh, inhuman, they're made to feel like they're not sitting thing, when in truth they are worth a lot. I've also been thinking about um, aesthetics in terms of spiritual formation or discipleship. Um, My contention is that if we want people to be able to um, grow in spiritual discernment, we want them to be able to recognize good theology and good biblical interpretation, I would say we also need to help them grow in discernment, to develop good taste in literature, in art, in music, in movies, in food. Um, What are your thoughts on that? Absolutely. And when people begin to put these things together in their own imagination— they begin to see that, for example, when you go to a theater and see a movie, it can be an opportunity for you to explore and to open yourselves up to the presence of God in unique forms and in unique ways. Uh, there's, there's all kinds of spiritual resonance that take place in, in a movie house, and we need to there's a lot of study about that. I'm just reading about that t- uh, today, and you talk about that with Robert Johnston, uh, that that uh, movies have a spiritual component, and we need to begin to be attuned to that component when we go into, into it. But we also recognize the role, for example, of the beauty of creation when we, uh, in our prayer life and in our spiritual life, but we we take prayer walks and we we use that in our um, development of our uh, devotional times and so forth. And there are even people today who, and Henry Nouwen is is a, a leader in this, who's helping us understand how we can pray with icons. We can begin to have eyes to see what our Orthodox brothers and sisters have seen for, for centuries that God can be accessed through images of his people and saints where we can pray in the, in the presence of these visual images. 
And these things can be tools. They, they can be obstacles for some people. And so that's for some people who have been so conditioned not to think about this as a, as a medium that's a possible spiritual medium, then you shouldn't try to push this on people, uh, of course. But for the younger generation, especially for whom visual culture is, is uh, taken for granted, and uh, we need to remember that we live in a totally different world than, say, Jonathan Edwards. It's estimated that people in Puritan New England heard 5,000 sermons in their lifetime. Well, um, that, that's not going to be true of people today, but they will have seen 5,000 images in the last year, for example, so that imagery becomes a, the medium by which they access the world and becomes Snapchat and all the rest of it, that the way by which they uh, relate to each other and by which they relate to the world. So it's natural for them to think about this as a, as a medium by which they can relate to God. And so there's a lot of work being done on trying to encourage that in appropriate ways. And how would you, uh, I've heard you talk about modern art and how the church, at least Protestants, took a long time to catch up to it. What could you say about modern art, modern abstract art, and, and how it can fit in with uh, the church? Well, the, 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 the development of modern styles in art, which uh, I've, I've written about, um, should be something that we open ourselves up to, to, to be able to experience just as we do when we go to the theater. We, 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 are, we're, we tend to judge things very quickly and say, well, I don't like this, or I don't understand it, or I'm not an art person or whatever. But we should be willing to open ourselves up to these new experiences, to let them be in a certain way, uh, speak to us. What is the artist trying to say? How is the artist is trying to express some new dimension of reality that's important? And the truth is, very often, motivating these things has been a kind of Christian past or Christian memory. That's one of the things that Jonathan Anderson and I focus on in our book, Modern Art and the Life of a Culture, is that most artists, as we know, obviously, very few are sort of church members or, or practicing Christians. But almost to a person, they've had Christian experiences or perhaps other religious experiences in their past. And these have shaped them. Picasso was raised as a Catholic. So there's there's just no way to escape the kind of Catholic resonance and religious, even religious resonances in his work. But people aren't, they don't have eyes for that because of our secular mindset that we have. We're just looking at this at a imminent level, a surface level, rather than trying to understand, well, what, what are the real questions that this artist is raising? What are the What's, what's at stake in these experiences? And, and how can I understand and even maybe learn something new from these experiences? 
So that's a process too. See, that, it, that's not something that happens magically, just like our Christian faith doesn't happen magically. It's a process of growing up to Christ in all things. And we should be open to growing in these other areas as well. I've heard you talk about some of your favorite artists, and I was very encouraged to hear you talk about Rembrandt. So I would love to hear more about Rembrandt. And if you could focus on uh, one or two of his uh, particular works, um, I'm especially attracted to the, the prodigal son painting. Yeah, the, the, the prodigal son is a, is a beautiful one. But he, he also has a painting that I, I use in my new book uh, on uh, David and Bathsheba, in which what you need to remember about Rembrandt is that his paintings are exegesis of Scripture often. They are, and if you study them, and especially some of his prints of the crucifixion and things, you'll see elements in, in the print of the details of scripture. And uh, that's the way it is, for example, in this painting of uh, David and Bathsheba. And has just gotten this letter, and you see him in the distance, David, but Bathsheba's focus is on Bathsheba. And that letter from David, which probably was, was not really a letter, but he sent word to her, calling her to him. She's holding this, and she's at this moment, and, and, and Rembrandt's genius is to capture this moment of this is a moment when my life is changing, and it's the moment I will decide for, uh, for or against uh, something. And, and a lot of his paintings are like that, and the Prodigal Son is, is like that, and uh, the 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 great resurrection of Lazarus, where Christ is calling Lazarus, and he sits up, and at that that very moment he receives uh, new life. Rembrandt captures that sort of magical moment, that moment of transformation. But always on the basis of his careful, careful reading of Scripture. And one of the interesting things is when he died, several of his books were books about the Bible and the Bible itself and so forth. So this was, this was very, very central to his work and to his imagination. How about the painting he did of uh, Christ on the road to Emmaus when he's having... He's breaking bread oh, with the there. two men, and then yeah, yeah, and and there again at that moment, and and he's sitting in this this looks like almost a churchly or arch there. Uh, he was known in the breaking of the bread. Now that is the moment again that Rembrandt captures in that supper. Uh, at Emmaus, where they invited him in to um, to Emmaus uh, to dinner, and when he broke the bread, they knew him. And Rembrandt captures exactly that moment. Well, 
But you notice it, it, an interesting difference, say, between Rembrandt and the medieval artists is that there's not an enunciation in Rembrandt. There's, a, there's no baptism of Christ. In other words, the, the sort of traditional categories of religious art are not there. But <clears throat> there you have deep moments from scripture that Rembrandt picks up and captures. You might say the moment of, uh, of transformation, a moment of uh, when, when people are made aware of, of some transcendent uh, truth and reality. He had a way of uh, expressing emotion that no other artist seemed to at his time. Exactly. You just see so much in the faces. Yeah, exactly. It, so could you pick uh, another favorite and uh, say something about <clears throat> them? Well, of course, my most favorite painting uh, painter is George Rouault, what Americans say, Rouault, uh, which is really one of the rare, well-known Christian uh, or religious subject painter in the, in the modern world. Interestingly, his family, which had become unfortunately very secular in his children, um, don't like him to be referred to as a religious artist, because that, of course, diminishes the value and worth of his paintings. <laughs> because religious art is a lower, lower on the on the, the uh, totem pole of of art values in twentieth century secular society. Unfortunately, but his work, uh, I I figure. Uh, between 150, 160 of his paintings, which is a, a large portion of his work, is his religious paintings. Christ, presence of Christ and the disciples in the in the in the suburbs, and Christ is always there. This deep presence of Christ among us, among the suffering, among the lonely, he's there. Among the dirt and the grime, he's there. And, and then on the cross is wonderful paintings uh, on the cross. So, um, yeah, people need to be aware of George Rualt and uh, his experience of uh, kind of a revival of his work in uh, recent years, happily, and uh, that you can you can see it in a lot of different places. A lot of religious spiritual books have used his paintings uh, as book covers, interestingly. So. I would like to hear what sort of, um, whether it's direct opposition or people just want to discount what you're doing. You've been in the middle of this resurgence of visual art and the arts in general within the church, <clears throat> particularly the evangelical church, for decades. So I imagine you've, you've heard some things that you didn't want to hear. <laughs> <clears throat> Well, yeah, you hear a lot of things, and and there's been a sign of pushback against this among more conservative uh, Christians because the idea that your imagination can be uh, a good thing is hard for a lot of people to get their minds around because they've been told so much that your imagination is what leads you astray 
Hmm. And therefore, in your prayer, to actually use your imagination, what you do is be reading scripture. But actually, in the medieval period, in one of the practices of reading, which is called Lexio Divina, which you probably have heard of, where you, you read scripture, but then you actually use your imagination to apply and, and expand on what you're reading. But there's, there's really a, a certain amount of opposition to that because it, 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 there's a sense that our imaginations are so disordered and fallen, uh, which they are, but of course they can be used for good or for evil. The truth is uh, they can be used in the service of goodness and in the hands of the Spirit of God. Uh, it can be used uh, to to make us more like Christ. So, um, other than that, and and I would also say that there's been a lot of sort of people that pick up on sort of these uh, in kind of images that you mentioned, Kincaid and others. He's one of the better ones, actually. There's a lot of things that are sort of worse than that. But um, people have to start where they are. And I hesitate to sort of critique somebody's taste in in art. I mean, I've had friends that have paintings of Kincaid alongside of Picasso, you know, prints and things. So, uh, you know, I, I hesitate to kind of critique anybody's taste but i'm i'm saying that i think it does reflect the fact that we mentioned earlier that protestant traditions have very little history or tradition of knowing about art or appreciating it uh, to say nothing of making it and uh, creating it and so we need to develop a whole tradition of patronage we need to in our churches, be willing to uh, not only show art, but be willing to buy it and put it up in our houses and, and encourage artists in the church, of which they're all there. They're there. They just are mostly ignored. And um, But they're, they're ready to do their work and to encourage uh, the use of visual elements in worship and so forth. So, and that's the work of the future, and I think our younger generation, I think you would agree with me that the younger generation is ahead of us in a lot of this, and so we we learn from them, just like we go to them and get them to fix our technology, so we're going to go to them and tell them, tell them to lead us into the future in terms of visual arts and music and so forth. So, in closing, for your final comments, if you you were asked to present a sermon, preach a sermon related to the arts and theology and the gospel and all that. What would your what would your three points be? Well, my my scripture would be Jesus' uh, uh, Sermon on the Mount. When at a very critical point, he says, "Don't worry about anything," but consider the lilies, see how they grow. For Solomon in all his glory was not adorned like one of these. Now that's that's the major focus of 
artists, I think, is that they help us consider the lily. Because what Christ is asking us to do is to see how it grows. I mean, it's not just look at it and see how beautiful it is, but watch it grow. In other words, begin to have an imagination for how beauty develops, how beauty grows, and how it takes time, and how we need to cultivate it. We have to water it, and we have to fertilize it, and we have to wait for it to happen and develop patience. All of that we do instead of worrying about what we're going to wear or how we look. So that there's a, there's two different ways of approaching the world that Christ is referring to in this passage. And so that would be my, my sermon. The one is the one in which we attempt to, to create for ourselves what is good and beautiful and make ourselves beautiful. Worry about, am I looking good? And is my post on Facebook uh, good enough? And is it going to attract a lot of positive likes and so forth? Or are we willing to give ourselves away to an experience in the beauty of the world, the beauty of the morning and the night, and of our friends and our family, and allow God to take care of us, which is what that's about, is that if God should take care of the lilies, uh, how much more will he take care of us? So I, that would be my, my sermon. I'm Dennis Metzler, and we've been looking at theology and art with Professor William Dearness um, from Fuller Theological Seminary. Dr. Uh, Dearness, thank you so much for being on the show. You're welcome. Thanks for having me, Dennis. Enjoyed the conversation. All right.